and welcome back everybody to Ladies First, your one-stop shop for all your Femslash podcast needs. I am Elizabeth, and this week I have a special guest, Lisa. Hello. So she is our website's resident expert on The Handmaid's Tale, and so since we're going to be talking about that this week, since it swept the Emmys, I figured I would bring her onto the show to talk about her fave. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So... Um, we also wanted to sort of expand the topic and talk a little bit more about how queer women are portrayed in stories of the apocalypse or dystopias, because this is honestly probably my favorite subgenre of literature. Or... Is it sci-fi or fantasy? You know what I mean. I love apocalypse stories. Yeah, I love apocalypse stories. I have about a thousand hours on Fallout 4, so this is just my favorite genre, hands down. So, Lisa, um, so we're going to start with The Handmaid's Tale, and then we're going to move on to V for Vendetta, because Mm -hmm. there actually are a lot of nice parallels between these two stories, and we're going to talk a little bit about, we're going to talk a little bit about our other favorite, The Hundred. Yeah! Yeah. I mean, whatever, I will admit to non-ironically liking that show, unironically liking that show, but whatever. It has its moments, we'll get there, we'll get there. We'll get there. Okay, so let's start with The Handmaid's Tale. My fave. All right. So, So, no, go ahead. ahead. Okay, I'll go ahead. So, yeah, The Handmaid's Tale, as Elizabeth said, swept the Emmys uh, in the sense that it won every award that it was up for on the main night, uh, which was, there were five of them. uh, But it actually won eight awards in total because there was also the Creative Arts Emmys. So um, shall I list what they won, Elizabeth? Yes, please. So they swept the actress in a drama categories. Uh, Elizabeth Moss won for lead actress. Then Anne Dowd won for her portrayal of Aunt Lydia. And Alexis Bledel won for her portrayal of Off Glen, a.k.a. Emily. Uh, they also won Best Drama. And for the pilot episode Off Red, they won for... Mm, screenwriting, directing, cinematography, and production design. So yeah, they kind of... Yeah, they won a lot of things. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> yeah. And it was well-deserved. Yes, it was. When I oh. made you watch it, you realized that. Yeah. Okay. So I actually, I hadn't watched this until, what was it, last week? A couple weeks ago, yeah. I think, and I watched it all in one sitting, too. Um, the reason why I didn't watch it is because I was sort of suspecting that it might be bothersome, considering the current political climate. You think? Uh, yeah, I wasn't entirely wrong, but I'm glad that I did watch it because it's one of the best shows I've ever seen. Yeah. Like uh, so... in in multiple ways too. Like it's really good artistically, and it's also like very good storytelling. And I mean, I know that they when they like wrote it and planned it and stuff, they didn't know what was going to happen, but it ended up being really good political commentary as well. So. Yeah, I actually, I remember, I read this book in high school. It's one of the, it's a, one of the mandatory books we had to read. And I remember when I read it in high school thinking, this is so unrealistic. How could this ever possibly happen? This is so stupid. <laughs> so needless to say, the book did not scare me, you know, 10, 10 to 15 years ago. Now, however, it's, yeah. this is uh, quite relevant. <laughs> So I actually only read the book like back in April, shortly before the series came out. Um, it's one of my best friend's favorite books. 
but I, despite the fact that I am Canadian, I have I had never actually read it. It wasn't required at my school, so. <clears throat> Which I know must seem strange, but I don't know. Not every school has the same curriculum. No, they don't. Yeah. Well, we we also have a country divide there, so. Yes, but I mean, it's a Canadian book, you would think, if anything, we would be required to read it, but I know that there are other people that I know who had to. Uh, yes. Anyway, one of the more interesting plots, one of the ones that we were more interested in, especially, was one that wasn't even in the book, and that was the one uh, of Offglen, who was a character in the book. Uh, they basically, t- well, they queered her, you might say, they turned her into a lesbian and they gave her this whole extra storyline. So, uh, what did you think of that, Elizabeth? <laughs> okay, so I'm going to say right now my opinion is going to be forever biased by how much I love Alexis Waddell. Okay. <laughs> um, that is the right character, right? I, I, if I, I apologize right now if I mix up, mix them up if we're going by their, the nicknames that they give them because it's hard to keep track. But yeah, yeah they, they, have, they have too many names. So. Mm-hmm. Well, because they get, they get passed around like chattel. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, even in the in episode five, um, after the main character is trying to talk to of Steven, as she's called at that point, she keeps calling her the wrong name. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I think it's an intentional thing. It's disorienting. Oh, yeah. It's intentional to keep them from organizing. Yeah, totally. Okay, but, um, yeah, Alexis Waddell's performance in this part was absolutely astounding. Yeah. And for me, it was surprising, too. Like, don't get me wrong. It's not that I think that she's a a terrible actress or anything. I just never, like, seen her in this kind of a role before. I hadn't seen Sin City or Mad Men. So I was very uh, surprised first to see her in this kind of a story and then amazed at how well she pulled it off without saying anything in that one episode. So, Yeah, I mean, I didn't watch Gilmore Girls too much when I was younger, but I did have sort of a soft spot for it. Um, and then, yes, I did love her in Sin City, but, but, you know, honestly, this is like, this is a big step up from that as far as, oh, yeah. act, as far as an acting challenge. I mean, this is, this would be an intimidating role for, I don't know, Meryl Streep. Yeah. Like this, for anybody. this is, this is a, this is a lot. This is a big part to play. And she just, not only is it emotional, well. it's loaded. Yeah. Like it's loaded it, with meaning. So you got to get it right. And so much of it is loaded on uh, nonverbal acting, yeah. Especially later, because then they have her in a mask, and so she can only yeah. act with the top part of her face. Like, goddamn. Yeah, but yeah, you're right. Even before that, like in the whole series in general, it's mostly yeah. People will say what they don't mean. Like they can't necessarily say what they want to say out loud. Yeah. So, so they're like emotional states and stuff uh, are communicated to us by like these little movements of their faces and their posture and stuff. So, which is why Elizabeth Moss won her Emmy. (laughs) The show is so good, you guys. Yeah, no, it's terrific. Okay. So what, sorry, before I go on to what I think, um, what else did you feel? What else did you think about that whole thing? Other than Alexis Bledel is amazing. Um, I'm glad it was included. Yes. Because the original book did not really deal with this, as far as I remember, or if it did, it was probably more of an afterthought. Granted, the book was written in 1985, so. I think that, like, it was progressive in 1985 to have the main character have a gay best friend, so. Yeah, yeah, that that was pretty, 
that was a pretty big deal. Even just the content of the book was pretty, I assume, controversial. <laughs> yeah, I would assume so. I mean, it has it's like on banned books lists and stuff, so. But yeah, I I like the way that it was handled. I know that some people I know that some people don't like the barrier gaze trope no matter what. They kind of put like a a ban that there's like they don't want queer characters to be killed at all. Okay, so context is important. How how about we get to that, okay? Yeah, I was like, this is what we wanted to actually talk about, so this is what we're going to talk about. <laughs> yeah, we're going to talk about that. Let's uh, let's just stick with... Yeah, so... Sorry, I'm just looking at the outline here. la di da I'm not as experienced with Elizabeth at podcasts, so I apologize <laughs> for all my um-uhs. Uh... That's okay. Yeah, so I really identified with um, Emily's plot a lot. Emily is one of her names. She, she has a lot of names, okay? Um... <laughs> I assume Emily is her given name. Yeah, Emily is her given name, but she is, like, technically listed in the cast as of Glenn, mm -hmm. which, I mean, that was the character's name in the book, so whatever, it's just, it's confusing, because she's only off Glenn for two episodes, mm -hmm. and then someone else is off Glenn, and her name is technically <laughs> off Glenn number two, yeah, which that's is funny. I but, had trouble yeah. keeping track of who was who. Yeah, exactly, so that's why I just refer to her as Emily, even though it may not come up as well for, like, search hits and whatnot. It's just easier for me. Um, but yeah, I, I identified with this story so much. So I didn't grow up in, like, Montana or anything. I actually grew up in a fairly liberal city, but I definitely grew up in a conservative subculture. Um, very Christian. So that scene... God, that scene in the courtroom, like, that scene just really, really got to me because the stuff that the judge was saying about, you know, uh, justice would see you sent to an eternity of suffering and your existence is an abomination and all this bullshit, I was just like, oh my god, dude. Like, the, quote, the, the quote he uses, or the, the Bible verse they use to convict her is Romans. Romans, Romans 1 verse 26, yeah, yeah, which is talking about giving over to your unnatural lusts or whatever mm -hmm. um many one of many bible verses that people use against gay people that has somewhat been debunked as in it might have other meanings but anyway that's an, another topic <laughs> but yes yeah, so, yeah exactly like i i just i like i said i identified with her a lot and so to watch her go through what she did I just felt it really, really viscerally, and the, how she was, like, muzzled the entire time. Mm -hmm. Like, the thing is, when you're gay in that kind of a situation, you don't talk about it. So I understand the concept of, like, feeling muzzled and not being able to defend yourself in that kind of a situation, like with the judge. Like, I would sit through people saying that and not say a word, even though I could have, because it wasn't safe or I wasn't comfortable, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and also, like, this is going to sound sort of ridiculous, but I honestly was a bit paranoid that because I was gay, somebody would, like, do FGM on me. I know that that might sound, like, weird. I, I'm not exactly sure what gave me that idea. FGM? But, yeah, well, yeah, FGM, like, female genital mutilation. So, uh... that whole thing, that struck me really hard because... Like, I had read about it, I guess, and I knew that part of the reason, you know, they do it in some cultures is to control your sex drive. And I was just like, oh, my God, like, 
and there there have been stories of like people who are gay and Christian like mutilating their genitals, cutting off their balls or something to yep. keep themselves from acting on that. So to me, that was extremely scary just because I'd had that fear before as a young person, you know. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, just real quick, we're gonna back up in case you actually haven't watched the show. We're gonna briefly <laughs> summarize her her story arc. Um, essentially, that might have been a good idea. I think we meant yes. to do that. We're so professional. Okay. Uh, so essentially, um, Emily has an affair with a Martha, which is I don't know really how to describe them. They're sort like of like a household figures. servant kind of. Yeah, they're sort of they're authority figures to the handmaids, but not right. yeah, not really. It, I yeah, don't. They're know. usually usually older women. Yeah. Um, but Emily, who is a handmaid, has an affair with a Martha, and they are found out. And uh, the Martha is hung for it, but since Emily is still a fertile woman, she is given a clitorectomy instead, with the intention, with the the implication that if she doesn't have sexual desire, she won't be attracted to women. <laughs> well, I know, but see, I know. Yeah, that's like there's so much in the show that made me furious, but that's good because I know that that's what it was supposed to do. Yeah, but like that that idea, that whole idea is brought up multiple times, and I found it really disturbing because Aunt Lydia said to her, "Think things will be so much easier for you now." And Fred, when yeah. he was talking to June, he said, "Oh well, we helped her, we saved her, we had a doctor take care of the problem." I was just like, "Oh my god!" Oh yeah, like people re- people really believe this that you know they're doing you a favor. See, you know? people see they don't. So here's something that a lot of people don't talk about. Or if you're not if you don't have a background in psych, you might not know this. Uh, they actually did use to castrate queer people. Mm-hmm. I don't. It's something that's that's really not talked about. Because um, usually, when you think of clitorectomies or you think of female circumcision, you think of countries that are not the U.S. or not Canada. Um, but we do have a history of this, especially with the queer community and the mentally ill of forcibly yeah. sterilizing people. And of course, in the in this uh, in the Handmaid's Tale universe, obviously they're not going to sterilize somebody, but. <laughs> this sort of this the this um extreme control over someone's sexuality to the point of surgically altering them there is some historical precedent for it yeah there is part of why it was scary yes and that's it's, why it's scary <laughs> yeah and you know it's still scary now like we've only just gotten equal quote-unquote rights within our lifetime more recently in the u.s you guys only got full country marriage equality a couple of years ago i think in canada it was 2005 or something mm-hmm. um but yeah like this is only started to happen now and gay people are still being persecuted in other countries we hear about it all the time and now which still happens here yeah it does and with mike pence now like one bullet away from the presidency it's really fucking terrifying because (laughs) all right whoa 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 whoa. okay pull back there we can't quite get that political okay sorry but yeah keep keep it just saying it's scary it is scary no i know i know lisa i live here Okay, shut up. It's still uh, it's still scary to know that this could happen to other people. No, no, I agree. It's it's a it's a terrifying time. You know how you remember how like I remember when I was younger, the first time I heard the phrase um may you live in interesting times as a curse, I remember Ugh. thinking that's weird. That doesn't make any sense. And then now I'm just like, "Oh, I get it. I get it now." Yeah. Oh, yes. So but a lot okay. of people took a lot of people took issue with this because yeah. it's visceral to watch. It's incredibly violent. Um, the Martha who gets hanged is never actually named. She's only given an ID number. Yeah. And also, um, you see her actually get hanged. So there's something there's something about the violence in this. The way that the violence was done in The Handmaid's Tale is it's very subtle, but it's actually a lot more frightening 
than the way that violence is done in say like a show like Game of Thrones. Yeah. Because it's so it's sort of like the it's like the difference between watching 300 and Schindler's List. The latter is going to keep you up for days. God. Even though the Schindler's former List. Even though the former is incredibly bloody and violent, it's the the stark realism of the violence in The Handmaid's Tale. Like yeah. it's just like watching that body drop like because I'm like, well, because I'm looking at it, I'm looking at the noose they're putting around her neck, and I'm looking for, you know, like the harness and the practical effect to try to, to try to, to get myself to not freak out when she drops. But it was really well done. Yeah. But of course, and, this is and that does... shot from the back of the van. Yeah. Like, I, okay, so I'm just gonna back up really quick and say I absolutely fucking love the way that they shot that whole sequence. So there was the rolling shots when they were being walked towards the van, and then when she was being hanged, which was like put it trapping the viewers the same way that they were trapped and yes. in the second in the second one where like the martha's being hanged we're also trapped in emily's point of view yes. but meanwhile during the van ride they like they focused on the hands and the faces and stuff and it was very intimate and then we were jerked from that intimate moment back into the you're trapped here and then she gets hanged like it was just emotionally horrible yeah like visceral it was very very like effective but god yeah, and I know. Me. So here, well, because here's the thing: is I know that some people pan the show because they're like, "Oh, it's bury your gaze." But oh my okay, God. so in this bury your gaze with a fucking purpose. It's bury your gaze because it it makes sense for this to happen in this universe, and it's supposed. Yes. Th this is a very deliberate and intentional writing of this trope, and it is intended to shock you. When you pay attention to how the scenes are filmed, all of the focus is on the two women. It's either on Emily's face, actually, mostly it's on Emily's face, or it's with Emily yeah, and the Martha together. Yeah, it's not it's not the same as just having somebody walk into a bullet. Yeah, that's that's not that's not narratively satisfying. This was narrative, even though no. this was visceral. It was visceral and hard to watch, but this was narratively satisfying. Yeah, and like it it accomplished what it was supposed to. Yeah, it was supposed to scare the shit out of you. It was supposed to scare the shit out of you, but also it was supposed to illustrate the fact that you know the queer community is still. Uh, you know, we're still persecuted in North America. Like, it's not in an obvious way most of the time. But, you know, I still feel, and so, you know, sometimes even though I live in a liberal city, I feel uncomfortable just, you know, being gay. And, uh, yeah, and, like, given the way that some religious people can be, especially in the States. Yeah. You know what I'm getting at? Mm -hmm. I live yeah. here. I know. I, although I am, I am from California, but uh, even uh, by actually by one of my very good friends, he uh, he used to go to church with his family, with his grandparents, and he actually stopped going because the church is getting very radicalized mm. in the the silent the silent majority kind of way. And this is like, and I I live in like the heart of the Bay Area, and one of the most the most affluent and educated places on planet Earth, and people still buy into this mentality. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It, Sorry. Go on. Yeah, we're we're gonna need to start moving on, but uh, this is actually a good place to do it because um, oh, when yeah. I when I watch Hang the on. scene, yes. Oh no, go on. Sorry, it's okay. Yes. Um. So yeah, because we're we're actually at twenty minutes right now, so we're gonna start talking about V for Vendetta. Um. When I watched the scene in The Handmaid's Tale, what it reminded me of was the entire sequence in the middle of V for Vendetta with brutality. Oh yeah. Absolutely. So I actually remember. When I first saw this film, I, I, I think I might have been out of high school, but I wasn't much older if I was. But the first time I saw this film, I remember that this was the first time I had ever seen a queer uh, queer lady couple. Um, 
portrayed in a domestic way. Mm. Which sounds really odd to say, but like this, yeah, the the whole the whole bit about the roses and the flat and them living together and them having met while filming the movie and like it's this amazing, beautiful, romantic story. And I am such a fucking sad that yeah. <laughs> I love this kind of thing. But this, but the film really stuck with me, and so I actually do watch it every year on the fifth of November. Um, Dork. I know, but but this. You ever wonder how this film became a fucking classic? There's like nothing in it for them. Yeah. Anyway, but know. but you know that but that was a similar feeling. It's that because uh, eventually they started around um, once the the Christian right took the country, they started rounding up all of the queer people and started mm-hmm. um, they either experimented on them or killed them. Yeah. And, but I mean. Part of me kind of wishes that we didn't still have to do these stories. But the reason why we still do them is because they still happen. It's still relevant. Yes. And even so, like, with, with Viva Vendetta, with that whole section, that's the other thing is that, um, that Valerie's story is the thing that makes the story continue. It's what V uses to motivate Evie. Uh, it's also, you know, implied that V had heard the story from Valerie herself. That he was one who originally received that note, right? Yes. Yeah. Because he also experimented upon that's how he got his his somewhat superhuman abilities was through that program. But yes, uh, but that you know, it's very human. It's actually a humanly important part of the film. And yeah, I just remember being astounded by how much empathy was given to it. Yeah, empathy for gay people. I can imagine that. God. I know. Well, yeah, we'll say it sarcastically, but it's it's sort of funny because, like, it is sort of novel, isn't it? Because I remember it was up, at the time, yeah. Yeah, because I remember growing up, most you know, I, there there was nothing. I mean, yeah. it's Nina, but you know, it's all that was all coded. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's not terribly helpful to somebody who was as young as I was and you know was on television. <laughs> yeah. I didn't watch it until like I was older, so. I yeah. got all the jokes right away, but, like, I was in my 20s, so. Yeah, yeah so, especially in these dystopias and in these apocalypse stories, um, I'm actually going to jump around a little bit. Okay, okay I'll, I'll try one. to follow. Okay. <laughs> so, it, it's really just for contrast. So, okay. there's usually two approaches that they take when dealing with queer people in apocalypse stories. Yeah. Either they do Handmaid's Tale did, or what Vivernetta did, and create what I would say is a semi-realistic portrayal of what would probably happen if the Christian right did take over a country. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the alternative is to not talk about it at all. Yeah. So, the hundred. I know, I know it's not everyone's favorite, but I do like parts of the show. Obviously yeah, not me too. Season three, but <laughs> uh, so what the hundred did was just they in the hundred universe sexuality just does not matter, and it's explicitly written this way because the writing team probably didn't want to have to deal with what the other writing teams did. They didn't want to have to necessarily write around prejudice. Yeah. Although now that I'm thinking about it, isn't it a little weird that it doesn't matter in the the universe of the hundred? Because they should be trying to repopulate the planet. That's a good point. 
I was well, I should say the grounders is the one that strikes me as a little odd. The side people, though, because they had such a huge, uh, such a humongous focus on population control, I'm sure they were thrilled when people turned oh, out yeah. to square because that's yeah. just one, you know, another set of people who aren't going to be reproducing on accident. Yeah. But yeah, so that's that's the the contrast of these two concepts. It's interesting to me, but I'm sort of always annoyed that there isn't anything in between. Yeah, I get that. Yeah, and. I understand, like, I understand that writers want to include queer characters, but then they do go the route of the hundred simply because they don't feel properly equipped to write something more complex. And this is, it's a fair excuse. It's getting, it's getting less fair as time goes on. It's less fair, it depends on what media we're talking about. Because if a major network is going to try to tell me with a straight face that they can't hire a sensitivity reader, you can't tell me you can't go out and find one. I guarantee you, you have a guarantee. You can't. It doesn't even have to be a lesbian. It doesn't even have to be a queer woman. Just find a queer person in your company and say, here, read this. Does this sound okay to you? Oh, no, man. Not all queer people agree on these things either. No, they because don't, but... <laughs> obviously, like with the whole thing with the Martha, right? That whole thing. Yeah. So we don't always well, agree. No, that is a good point. And even the thing, it, it even like, yeah, we actually, we probably disagree more than we agree on it. I think we love to argue. Oh, yeah. But yeah, so, but that's, you know, I, I, I do love this subgenre, the apocalypse. Mm -hmm. I've just, I want to exist in this subgenre, but my issue with it is often that I can either exist and be persecuted, or I can exist and never have my sexuality acknowledged at all, as if it were not a yeah, as if it were not a really intrinsic part of my identity. Mm. Because that's that's there's a problem with the, that's the problem with the difference between the fi fictional queer characters and real life queer people is that being queer is so intrinsic to who we are, it shapes so much of who you are because of how people treat you because of what you are. That there are certain things from that that are just have sort of been absorbed into the queer identity being being bullied and being persecuted is kind of just part of our culture even just things like the way that we make fun of the people who bully us is all kind of part of this queer culture and a lot of queer characters sort of lack this especially if they're in a universe where it's not talked about on the other hand, if they're in a universe where it's not talked about, then they probably haven't experienced some of those things, so they might not have to. It's a kind of like idealism, and I, I actually really like the concept of this. I think it's cool. Uh, I, I like the idea that you could exist and be queer and have it not matter, but still at the same time, the people who are in situations like that, they don't necessarily feel gay, um, or sometimes people like they ping gay. But since they don't really talk about it on the show, we never get canon confirmation. That was my issue with Zoe Monroe. Mm -hmm. So, you know you know who I'm talking about, right? Bombs away? Yeah, yeah, so, you know, she she pinged very queer, right? Um, if you, if uh, the listeners don't know, Zoe Monroe was one of one of the delinquents on The 100. Yeah. She, yeah. Was, Har she was Harper's best friend. Oh. I really died. liked Harpo. And, uh, yeah, Zoe I'm still was, mad uh, at Bellamy because he got her killed. And Octavia, actually. They both kind of got her killed. Well, yes. We have to not talk about season three, or we're gonna go Yeah, oh, again. okay, yeah, yeah, <laughs> well, it'll be too long. But, yeah, so, the actress did confirm her as queer on Twitter, but we never... The problem is, 
that we have gaydar, but straight people don't necessarily have it. So unless it is explicitly said in canon, this character is queer, they're going to assume that they're straight. Because everybody is straight, right? So, yeah, well, yeah you're, you're straight until proven not straight, so. Well, okay, so there is a problem. It's very difficult to write from a lens that isn't your own. Every writer has this problem. Doesn't matter who yeah. you are. Like, I would struggle, I would probably struggle to write a straight man as a protagonist. Oh, yeah. So, I sort of understand why they have so many, like, or, so usually um, the technique they'll go to is they'll just, you'll write a character and then just make them queer without adjusting anything else about the character. And for now, I actually am okay with this approach because I think it works. You, you get a lot of variety, and then after that point, it sort of becomes put on the actress to make it work. I prefer when they take the approach that they decide someone is gay later on because they feel like they could be gay, which might have been what happened with Alex Danvers. And to be fair, <laughs> I don't really watch Supergirl, and I don't want to get you talking about that because you'll blab for hours, but you know what I mean? I promise I'll keep it under 15 seconds. You are correct <laughs> that uh, in the first season, Alex did not have a stated sexuality, but, you know, uh, she pinged on, on the queer the queer lady radar. She just, she felt queer. And the writers are like, okay, well, we didn't actually canonically make her straight because she doesn't actually date anybody in the first season and she doesn't date much at all. So they're like, all right, why not? Because it made sense. Yeah. Or even Clark. Like, I guarantee you that wasn't on the docket from day one. <laughs> Oh, no, that was, like, they, I believe they explicitly said at some point that, like, they decided to do that later on when they were thinking about expanding their representation and stuff. Like, her bisexuality was literally an afterthought. Yeah. And I, I I don't think that it was, like, terribly done or anything. But, no. you know, she doesn't necessarily ping as gay right away, except for the way that she, like, gawked at Octavia when she was taking her clothes off in the pilot. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> I, one of my favorite, one of my favorite things is when a straight, but a, especially if it's a straight actress, but um, when they're playing a straight character and they do something like that, and you're just like, "Do you have female friends? Do you look at your friends like that?" Yeah. <laughs> like, are you aware? Like, Katie McGrath has this problem, and no matter what part she plays, it's like, are you aware of like your your facial expression? I mean, you're an actor, you should be, but like, are you aware how how you're looking at them? Because like, I know you're going for admiration, but you honestly look like you're starstruck by her beauty. Yeah. <laughs> Not quite the same thing. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, yeah, so... So where are we going to go from here? About... Well, yeah, so, so what's, the sol <laughs> well, what's the solution to this problem? Like, what can we start... And especially with this sub this particular subgenre of the apocalypse, because you actually just said a couple, sec a couple minutes ago that, um, that with the 100, they were talking about expanding representation. Mm -hmm. Which is good, but also, you know, this is a show about the apocalypse. People die. Um, so there's this this problem where a lot of the shows that are air quotes expanding their their representation, um, they're really specific genre fiction shows, and they don't always appeal to everybody. <laughs> You're talking about Winona Earp. <laughs> No, actually, but Winona Earp is a good example of a show that, like, honestly, it's either your thing or it's not. It is an all-on or on-off. Either you can put, either you can tolerate the camp, or you'll think it's the dumbest show you've ever seen. Yeah, I'm kind of like in the middle of the road, actually. I'm in the middle too. <laughs> like, like I, I like it, but I think we both have the same problem where we don't really care about Doc and Dolls. 
And we, <laughs> yeah. we just don't identify with him at all. Like, Do- Dolls is kind of okay. I don't really care for Doc. Uh, yeah. Even Jeremy, I don't identify with him at all. He's funny, but... Yeah, well, that's... And that's the other thing, and actually that's, like, to, to kind of bring it back, bring it back to um, the queer women, is that um, we're very rarely the protagonist. And yeah. so we are often, like, even if the apocalypse genre is not, I'm just realizing, like, how many queer women have had to sit through The Hundred, or The Handmaid's Tale, or V for Vendetta, and, like, these, like, how many people have had to sit through these if it's not necessarily their thing, and have to sit through a story that's not about them just to see one little bit of content? Yeah, that is... That's our lives, dude. Yeah. <laughs> At least now we have, like, YouTube and we can fast forward and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So, I'd like to go back to The Handmaid's Tale for a moment. Please. Because we, uh, this is going to be such a meandering episode. Yeah, uh, we're really going all over the map here. Well, that's okay, though. I kind of, I kind of like having these, con- I, I like having these conversations because I, I find that when you just talk about if you just talk about ships in a very me- ships and queer characters in a very mechanical way, um, you don't really ever have a new conversation. That's, that's right. one of the reasons why I'm, I'm sort of I'm having trouble with burnout with fandom because we just keep having the same conversations over and over and over again, and then each time we move to a new fandom, we have the same <laughs> conversations over and over and over again. Like this whole debate about the barrier gaze. Anyway, sorry, go on. Uh, yes. Let's not return to that yet. You talk about whatever you're going to talk about. Yeah, so um, I want to go back to Moira. Yeah, Moira. Yeah, so this is a good this is a good time to talk about Moira. And honestly, she deserves Agreed. her own little section. Mm-hmm. So I actually, since this is your, your baby, um, you'll probably explain it better to me. You can tell them about the character. Okay, so Moira is basically the main character, Alfred slash June's best friend, and she's gay, and they in played the book, by Samira Wiley. Yeah, yeah, that's very important. She's played by Samira Wiley, <laughs> so everybody loves her. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so they either met in college or like were friends in college or whatever, and um, so they stayed friends afterwards. They were all tight and shit, and then they both at separate times get captured and then they end up at the red center together, which is where the handmaids get indoctrinated. They try to escape together. Uh, June is caught and Moira is not. And then we later on see Moira working as a prostitute at this um, brothel called Jezebel's. And they have some conversations and eventually Moira runs away and gets to Canada. Mm -hmm. That's the basic plot line for her. And notice how that whole thing, it has nothing to do with her sexuality. Yeah. Yeah. So I really like that she isn't tokenized for it. She's also a total badass. Like, she's, she has her own character, and it doesn't necessarily have to do with her being queer, but yet they acknowledge it a lot, at least early on. And I really I liked would, that. I they didn't shy away from it. Yeah, see, like, I could I could take the implication that the thing that makes her so bullheaded is that she is a queer woman and therefore will Possibly. be heavy, heavily politically minded. That's the implication you get in the book, for sure. Yes, definitely. Yeah. And I, th- I think that comes across in the show as well. And it speaks a little bit about who June is as a person, that this person is her best friend. It's a, a queer woman of color. Yeah. But yet, you know, June... Uh, you know, even in the book, like, Moira, she predicted all this coming before Alfred did, because she was a member of a persecuted minority, 
mm-hmm. and like yes, Wild June is a woman. Uh, she's heterosexual, so and so she's married to a man as well. So that means that even when the money is taken over, it goes to her husband, which isn't that bad. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and and she's white and she's middle or upper class, so you know she's really not in that precarious of a situation. No, Moira is a little bit more being a queer woman of color. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, and that's even, and that's even like myself. Like I'm white. I'm, I I'm white. I grew up affluent. Um, yeah, you know, from California, and I'm you know very educated and very privileged. So, I really like that June was sort of in denial because people like us kind of tend to be. Even yeah, though... she was one of the people left protesting at the end too. So, yes. Yeah, so that's that's nice to see. But yeah, but that's that's the thing though is that um, there's always this when you're someone who looks like me, there's always this mentality that it's not going to happen to us that our whiteness is always going to trump everything else that we will be able to sort of sweep under the rug the fact that we're queer and that's probably one of the reasons why this why the Handmaid's Tale got to me so as much as it did is that yeah. Is that sort of that realization that oh no it doesn't matter it's actually all women yeah because that's and I mean you, yeah you you want to be intersexual in your feminist politics and it's not something that I have always been but in the past several years I've worked I've worked towards being much better about that but you know there's also that that's it's sort of like the the men in the show who all just sort of sort of sort of go oh there's nothing I can do sorry I guess that's just the way it is um that's what the the white queers will often do is that because we don't experience the same things that other types of queer people might, we will sometimes sort of fade into our white privilege to avoid dealing with a problem. Yeah, and like that can't... also, that depends on a lot of other things, including like how you were raised and stuff, but... True, it does. Yeah. But, you know, this, but this is a, this is a phenomenon that happens. Mm-hmm. And I like that The Handmaid's Tale had a diverse cast because it adds elements of this to that yeah and i believe i believe you mentioned where was it cast race blind it was cast race blind and then there was a bit of a controversy about it because they didn't adjust the scripts to account for the different characters races mm-hmm. so they they basically just ended up ignoring any racial issues and they've said that they will try to do a better job of that in the second season which i appreciate um i hope that they're also paying attention to what people are saying about queer women and that they you know try not to kill us off unless necessary because like why okay i didn't mind them killing off the martha that was she was symbolic that there was a specific purpose for her death and we didn't know her we weren't invested in her it it would be totally different for me if they killed emily or moira i would be devastated you know what i think you're right yeah because i was just thinking like i actually almost was gonna was gonna message you just be like so you need to tell me right now if emily dies so i can (laughs) <laughs> okay so i didn't know that that was frustrating because i watched it as it came out and i was just like what the fuck is that it like are we gonna <laughs> find out what happens to her and like there were like articles coming out saying oh you know we left it ambiguous on purpose and i was like ambiguous on purpose what the fuck that means you guys are thinking about just writing her off in that manner which is awful okay so let's let's move on to that the 
the sort of disappointing queer representation later on, there's not a lot I have to say about that. Most of it is in my article, The Handmaid's Tale Buried at Skies Alive, so I'm just going to sort of summarize it. Yeah, we can go ahead and link to it, too. Yeah, we'll link to it. But yeah, so I was sort of disappointed with the queer representation in the second half of the season uh, for several reasons. So Moira was... She wasn't in episodes six or seven. She was in episode five for a hot minute when she said, "Ooh, you look heterosexual. <laughs> uh, she was important in the last three episodes, but her sexuality was not acknowledged when it should have been, which is when she was working as a prostitute. In the book, it is acknowledged. She mentions like, oh, whatever, man, this is, this is kind of like butch heaven, you know, there's women everywhere and I get, you know, booze and drugs and I only have to work nights. And she was, you know, just trying to make the best of it, even though she had really given up all hope. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's kind of the same tone to it there with Moira in the series, but they didn't mention the fact that she's a lesbian working as a sex worker catering to men. Like, there's an extra layer of ick with that. Yeah, I actually and I feel like that should have been. Yeah. I I I actually sort of missed that she was queer. How did you miss that? She was kissing. Well, not kissing. Okay, she never actually kissed a woman. Another thing I have a problem with. Um, but yeah, like I thought that it was pretty obvious. I thought they made tons of references to it. I, I think I may have picked up on it, but I should say in the scene in which they're in the brothel and they're having that conversation, it uh-huh. wasn't it wasn't a salient detail to me at the moment. I actually completely forgot about it. Because otherwise that conversation would have been a thousand times more disturbing to me. Yeah, exactly. And, like, I – the thing is I had only – I'd recently read the book, so I was very aware that, like, Moira was the gay best friend. Like, she's not just that trope, the gay best friend, but she is. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So I I knew about that. I was aware of that. So to me, the whole – you know, her ending up working in that scenario was really – awful like i guess it's not as bad as being hmm. a handmaid except you i guess you have to have a lot more sex with men but it, i honestly it, would prefer to be I a don't handmaid know. i don't know dude like their lives are so regulated and at, at jezebel's they are allowed to sleep with other women too like the men encourage it like i know that's fucked up because like they're they're watching <laughs> okay you, you know the scene i'm talking about with the the fucked I, up threesome. i know i know what you're talking about that whole gonna... thing was like oh my god no, I was going to say, like, if you want, like, like, one of the most depressing truths of the reality of being a queer woman is the fact that we actually have opinions on which we would prefer, because this is a genuine fear. Yeah, oh my god. <laughs> like, the fact that, like, I just, I was just thinking about this as we were talking about it, I was like, yeah, no, we, we actually have, like, a preference, like... It's, it's like the fan. Here's yeah, it's how I want. My, it's like playing Would You Rather with, like, Ben Stiller. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's like, would you... So would you rather be a handmaid or work at Jezebel's? That's actually quite a good one. Like, I think I would rather work at Jezebel's, but I don't know, dude. Like, uh, neither is good. I couldn't do it. And that's just that's just what I'm saying off the top of my head. If I really thought about it, I might change my mind. Maybe I would rather just be sent to the colonies and die. I don't know. Yeah, but Except it, let, let's, let's, let's not, because I don't want that to happen to Emily, and it might. No. We don't know yet. Okay, but there are other reasons why I uh, why I wasn't super happy with the queer representation. There was that whole thing, obviously. I also didn't like that Moira's escape plot was given to Luke. The whole episode seven was about Luke escaping, and that story was originally Moira's. Right. And they basically did away with it. And so that's t- taking, you know, a queer woman's plot, giving it to a straight man, and they took away the whole world building of the, the underground, mm-hmm. the people that were helping them escape, the Quakers and stuff. And it just seems sort of random, like him going around on this bus and 
I don't know. Like, I guess it was world building, but it seemed like it was really shitty world building compared to the book. Yeah, that was that was actually my problem with it is that um, I liked it because I liked it because I was trying to get a better grasp on exactly how big Gilead is supposed to be. Because, mm. like I said, it's been a long time since I've read the book, and the show is actually not very good about being explicit because they send foreign dignitaries, but they are not terribly clear about where they're from. So I was just I spent a lot a lot of the first half of the season I spent thinking to myself, okay, so is it like just Massachusetts? Is it the entire East Coast? Is it the entire U.S.? I believe it's meant to be the entire continental U.S. Yeah, because they did say that they it's slaughtered implied. Congress. They said that they slaughtered Congress, and that's you know basically our seat of power. So they said that there's two states left in the U.S., which is Alaska <laughs> and Hawaii. So I think it's implied. All but... right. And they talk about the Florida oranges and shit. So, like, we know it at least extends down the East Coast. All right. So um, we're, we're we're criticizing my critical thing or my uh, my listening skills here. <laughs> okay, I'm not. I, criticizing you. I know. I know. I'm I'm just joking. Yeah. I, 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 watched... I missed all of this the first time through. I think you've only like wait. How many times have you watched the show? I watched just it once. once? Okay, mm-hmm. yeah, so I've watched it several more times. I've had a chance to pick up on more details. It's just, uh... it's normal. It's fine, Elizabeth. <laughs> uh, yep. My other, thing, the... Sorry, my, other thing with, my other thing with Emily um, is that I'm okay with her story being what it is in the first season, as long as this isn't the end of her yeah, story. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. If she isn't in charge of some division of some rebellion with a girlfriend, <laughs> I'm going to be very upset. Okay, do you want to know my theory? Yes, I do, actually. My theory is that she's going to be traded to Mexico. Because oh, it's not what we would expect. Those, uh... Okay, so they're implying that she was sent to the colonies, like people when they're talking about it, who are involved with the show. I think that they're trying to throw us off. Who knows? Like, she could go to either <laughs> one. And Very true. Okay, if she went to the colonies, she could help whip up rebellion there. Uh, she might also die, because, you know, radioactivity and shit. Mm-hmm. She could also just be sent to Mexico because she's a troublemaking handmaid but she's not obviously deformed so there's no like political issues with that Mm -hmm. yeah I mean either way doesn't really matter I would like it if she was still in Gilead and like she met up with June and was working with her I somehow doubt that's gonna happen I don't know about her getting a girlfriend it would be nice at the same time I kind of want to see her reunite with her wife and I would really like to see a flashback episode where we get to meet her wife and I want her wife to be Tatiana Maslany (laughs) Yes. 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 Sorry, didn't mean to pop your microphones over there. Or your headset. No, it's fine. But yeah, she's the right nationality, dude, and she's a tearjerker. She'd be great. Yeah, I mean, I think what it is is, you know, I know what it is. It's that, and this is actually also one of the reasons why I love the hundred so much. It's like, nah, I brought it up for a reason. The reason why I love the hundred so much is that Clark is a queer woman, and she has so much autonomy in that plot. She is the one in control, not just the protagonist, but she is a protagonist who is in control of what happens. She makes decisions that other people cannot influence. In fact, she very frequently does things against what everyone else wants her to do. Yeah. And that's often my frustration with queer characters, is that they lack agency and they lack yeah. autonomy. And so, what I, w- I, I, do, I do like what they did with Emily. I do, despite being part of the barrier gaze trope, I do like this plot. I just need something else. 
And you know what? She does, in a sense, take back her autonomy. Like, she steals the car. I think that that's meant to be, like, a going out in a blaze of glory thing. Because she didn't yes. try to escape. Yes. I, don't, I think that she probably assumed that they were going to kill her. I, uh, I especially assumed when she they ran were going to kill her. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I assumed they were going to... But then I remembered, oh, she's a fertile female. Don't, you know, she's untouchable. Not necessarily untouchable. Like, in the book, they do kill... And, yeah, they killed Janine. Or, sorry, they don't kill her, but they... She killed herself, they, doesn't she? No. Uh, I don't know if that happens in the book, but in the series, they, they were going to stone her, right? That's, like, the big scene yes. in episode 10 where they decide not to. Yes. So, like, they can kill handmaids. But, you know, it seems like they would much rather control them. Well, yeah, because... That's the whole, like, the whole point of the series is about controlling female sexuality because... Okay, sorry, that so was low. redundant, but... Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean. But yeah, and that's and even, like, with B for Vendetta, again, I get to watch myself on screen be rounded up, marched into essentially a concentration camp, and then starved to death and murdered. It's not a fun story. The flashbacks are great, but then the story still ends that way. Yeah, and, uh, like, they are what we would call the inspirationally sacrificed gay trope, mm -hmm. Valerie and um, ooh, Ruth, and it looked like Emily was kind of going to be that way, too. It kind of looked like she was being fridged uh, for, like, June's development, basically, like she was being used as a prop for her, and that she was written off in a way that seemed sort of <laughs> out of character for her. Yes. Yeah, like, that was very strange. I did not expect her to steal the car. It didn't feel in character but I, 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 I think, don't know, dude. You know what I think the problem is? And actually, you're right. Flashbacks would help. It's because we don't actually know anything about Emily. She's actually yeah. not... She's. I mean, we know a little bit about her backstory from what she's told us, but it's it's not a lot. Like, we don't know enough to read into her actions in the present. Exactly. So her stealing... Yeah. Which, is a pro which is a problem in, in character development and writing. It's something that needs to be rectified. So that's... If they had some more flashbacks of her or any at all i should say um yeah that that could explain why she had that sudden moment of just fuck it i would be yeah. happier with that scene it just you're right agreed it, it was like out of nowhere and granted like i'm the kind of person where the once you push me far enough i will snap and i will do irrational things like that and in fact i probably would do something irrational in her situation but it it needed something more See, we're yeah. capable. See, we're capable of critiquing things we like. <laughs> yeah, without being like, "Oh my God, cancel the show." Sorry, I didn't mean to yell. I did mean yeah. to yell, but you know what I mean. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't mean to burst your eardrums, guys. That's all right. Yeah, I we, just got excited. <laughs> but yeah, we don't go. We don't go head hunting unless we need to. Well, some of us. Yeah, and like, and really, like, and this is funny because, like, because. The problem of not having a sufficient backstory or not seeing a sufficient amount of it. Um, actually, we have the problem with Lexa too. Is that oh, yeah, we are absolutely. we are told her backstory, but we don't get to experience it. Which, especially if you're so, there's something, there's something I, I, I there's something I call the re relatability gap. And so the relatability gap is the difference between who you actually are in real life versus relating to a character who is not like you on TV. Mm -hmm. And so, or the somewhat more, like you. Yes. So the more different these two things are, the larger gap you have to jump in order to empathize or sympathize with the character. Which is why you empathize with uh, Serena Joy. <laughs> yes. Sorry, but, that was a low blow, but. But you're no, I do empathize with Serena Joy. It also okay. It's the actress who plays her played Miranda Lawson in Mass Effect, and that's honestly. 
probably feeling it more than the actual character. Oh, okay, that's fair then. <laughs> I am I am the kind of person who, as much as I don't like to admit this, I am the kind of person who would at least seriously consider, if not actually do it, of working with the devil so I don't die. Like, Plus, I, you know, I, you're, you're rich, so that helps. See, exactly. That's I, <laughs> I, I, I empathize with her cowardice. I empathize yeah. with her buying into this and clearly did not realize that it was going to apply to her as well. <laughs> Which is really stupid, but... Yes. Oh. Let's but, just subjugate all the women, except for me. Yeah, but, but here's the thing, though. The reason why I empathize with Serena is she's on screen so much. Compared to, say, like, with Alexa, the problem with Alexa is she has precious little screen time, and a lot of it is not devoted to developing her as a character. It's more story beat. Yeah, Serena Joy got her whole flashback episode, right? So Yeah, so the relatability gap to jump for Lexa if you are not a queer person is actually pretty big, because we can easily project upon her, but otherwise she's actually kind of a thinly written character, and that's often a problem with these, especially in these apocalypse genres, because people die off so quickly, is that like- They don't have time to develop. Yeah, you never, you don't really notice how thinly a character is written until they die, and then- you have to keep going, and so, like, especially with queer characters, and you keep going back and watching the content over and over and over, and then you start to have this realization, oh, there's really not much here, is there? Yeah. And so it's not to say that Lexa isn't a good character. She is. It's just that The Handmaid's Tale, V for Vendetta, The Hundred, the, they all have this problem where these queer characters are the best developed in their suffering. <laughs> and not very well developed otherwise. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Moira, maybe a little bit more. I think we have a better sense of what she was like before, because, like, well, mm-hmm. obviously we have a better sense of what she was like before. We see her in all these flashbacks. And yeah. we see she didn't actually change very much who she was until, like, she was at Jezebel's. She was basically... Yeah, okay, that's not actually true. When she was at the Red Center, she was, like, doing what she had to to fit in. But she was always planning to get out of there. When she gets to Jezebel, she's basically been broken. Yeah. Basically, she's at the place that Emily was in season one, episode five. Exactly. And these story beats make sense. It's just like, you know, and also we're only talking about a single season of a single season's worth. Um, They aren't the protagonists, which means that they aren't going to get as much screen time, which means that season two is the place where if they're going to develop this more, it's got to happen then. Because that's the other thing is that I I don't want to sacrifice the story quality just to get the queer representation in. I am okay with a slow development as long as it does happen eventually. Yeah. It's more, I I want to be told, uh, being told a good story is actually more important to me than just having a queer character in that story. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is one of many reasons why we don't necessarily like the L word, because it's a terrible story. Um, exactly. Yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, in theory, we should love that show. There's so many queer women to pick from. So but... many gay sex scenes, and yet the story is awful. And the people, like, the characters are terrible people. Yeah. And They're I think not, it... not actually relatable to a lot of us, so. Exactly. And, like, and especially, like, with the thing with the sex scenes, is that, um, is that, that's all people seem to, there was a time when that was all people focused on. You know, like the YouTube compilations and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. But like, there, no, are, want... there are no gay kisses in The Handmaid's Tale. No, they weren't. Did you notice that? Yeah. But Nothing I like, like that, that because you still understood fully how intimate Emily's relationship exactly. was with the Martha. We didn't need it. 
Yeah, and so like 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 that. I think we finally stumbled on the answer to my question from probably about a half hour back. Is like how how do we improve this? Well, I think the Handmaid's Tale has the right idea. You need to make your gay characters feel gay, and you need like it needs to read as well as Alexis as as well as Alexis Waddell played that part. You you need to write your queer characters so that you read like this. So if you could show somebody just a random screenshot of the two characters looking at each other, you would say you would recognize immediately those two women are in love That's with each gay. other. That's gay. That's <laughs> gay. Unlike Supercore, which just looks gay. But... I don't. It's okay. Forget it. I don't even. I don't even know Supercore. I'm just throwing that out there. That's what I. Hear. It is a non-canon shit, but yeah, like there's like I said, um, like Katie McGrath does this thing where she doesn't blink a lot when she acts, and so she has this very intense stare, and she's yeah. very very vibrant. And with eyes. that smile. Ah, uh-huh. so whether it so it, it it's sort of we interpret it as as being flirtatious because we're you know, or we're I interpret see that. Yeah, because uh, queer women see that, but you know. I can understand if that wasn't the intention. <laughs> I certainly don't notice when men flirt with me, so. Oh. All right, so we need to I start wrapping up. I don't necessarily notice when anybody does, so. Yeah. All right, so we need to start yeah. wrapping up. Um, so is there anything else that you wanted to get out before we depart? I'm just looking really quick here through, like, The Handmaid's Tale stuff especially. I think we pretty much covered all of it. Yes. It was a bit of meandering conversation this time, but I think we got through most of our outline. Yeah, like, I, I, at least we had time to discuss the whole, like, I think this is important that we reiterate this again. Bury Your Gaze is bury your gaze is a trope, for one, where it's like, you know, women loving women die. It was originally mm-hmm. also a thing that happened, it was intended to be a moral judgment to show that people who are sexually deviant do not get happy endings. Yes. So it can mean different things, and also there's so much context involved. Lexa, if she had been killed off in a way that was more befitting of her character, it would have gone over better, I think. There's and... also that weird thing that it was Titus that ended up killing her, and because he was so disapproving of her relationship with Clark, they ended up accidentally implying that he, that this right. happened because of, it didn't, but it's implied. Well, plus there's the whole, like, it was mirroring what happened with Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I don't exactly. think that was intentional, but it just, it all in all, it turned into a perfect storm of things that maybe they didn't predict, like, things that people would read into it. But yeah, but Because, they, you know, if they're not queer women, they might not know that shit. Yeah, and the larger point is, though, is that with, say, with V for Vendetta or The Handmaid's Tale, I feel like these, I do feel like these stories still need to be done. I feel like there is cultural importance to this. And yeah. the reason why is because, honestly, this sort of kind of guilt porn, it works, guys. It works. Oh, yeah. <laughs> It makes people empathize empathize with you, and so Which well, yeah, we need. yeah. So well, yeah, it's not the greatest to watch yourself, um, because especially with with the Handmaid's Tale, because the heart of the story is always with Emily. Yeah, that you are. This is very clearly not a condemnation of homosexuality; it's a condemnation no. of the culture that condemns it. That no. is why I think, yeah, that's okay. It's a good use of the trope. You can use yeah. tropes positively. Tropes are not inherently good or bad. They are made good or bad by how they are used. Yeah. And with Emily, like, it's amazing that she was only in four episodes. She wasn't even this, in the second half of the season, and yet she was, like, easily the most heartbreaking character. Like, she yeah. was the one that people seemed to really latch on to. Yeah. It was a, that's probably writing... why they decided not to kill her. <laughs> yeah. It was the, yeah. The, writing, the writing and the casting... It was such a beautiful storm of all coming together. It was really, really phenomenal performance. Yeah, they did a, 
they were very, very right to pick Alexis Bledel for that because they needed somebody who was like the all-American sweetheart so that people would really empathize with That her. was my exact thought. You pick a very pretty white girl with blue eyes. <laughs> yeah, and also like a pretty famous actress. Yes. Um, I believe they said... I think I heard Reed Morano say in an interview that they wanted somebody who was, like, recognizable but wouldn't be distracting. Yes. And, and I think yeah. that was a good choice. I think they I mean, pulled she, it off. Yeah. Like, she's not a, like, really overbearing presence, but she's very subtly there, and you're always noticing her, you know? Yes. All she's right. Important. So, all Go right. On. We, are, we'll we, are, we are out of time, but yes, more, more queer characters like like Emily. Not necessarily in barrier gay stories, but more well-written characters like Emily. And also like Moira, only please don't forget to acknowledge that she's gay when she's being used <laughs> in a brothel. Yes. yes, and I would also like some middle ground between Emily and Clark. Yeah. All right, so thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Lisa, for for coming on today to talk about Anytime. The Handmaid's Tale with me. Excellent. Thank you for letting me talk about The Handmaid's Tale. I love it so much. Yes, so. yes. Uh, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, and also don't forget to check out our merch store. We have some pretty kick-ass shirts in there. I am still a great big fan of the Ride or Die shirt, because I am Sandra's trash. So, did you guys like The Handmaid's Tale? Do you like V for Vendetta? It's one of my favorite movies. Come down to the comments section and talk to me about it. Anyway, please always talk to us. For... Yes, please talk to us. Please come and have a nice little chat with us. As always, thank you for listening, and we will see you next time. Bye.